Hey, I'm Jason Gray. Hey, this is Sarah Gross. Hey, I'm Andrew Osinga. Hi, this is Michael Carr. Hey, this is Andrew Peterson, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. And this is me, so let's have some exciting music. Who is me, you ask? Well, me is Rick Lee James, and this is my podcast, Voices in My Head. We've got a great show for you this week, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Voices in My Head podcast. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and this is episode number 147. Today's special guest is Matt Litton. The reason we have Matt Litton on today is that there is a new Harper Lee book out. If you don't know who Harper Lee is, then where have you been? Harper Lee is the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, and her new book, Go Set a Watchman, just released a few days ago. Matt is an expert on Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird as he taught that book for several years. Even wrote a book called The Mockingbird Parables, which is really good and I strongly suggest that you check it out. Go to mattlitton.com and find out more information about him. And this is sort of a special week because uh, I have an outtake on this episode because I just kept messing up the intro and it was kind of funny. So if you want to hang around to the end of the show, you're going to get to hear the outro today. But I'm not going to talk anymore on the introduction right now because I want to get straight into my conversation with Matt. We had such a great time talking about Harper Lee, go um, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Go Set a Watchman, so I'm just going to let you hear our conversation now. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. God bless you. My guest today on the Voices in My Head podcast is an old friend as well as an incredible author. His name is Matt Litton. It seems like everywhere I go online these days, I see Matt. He's being interviewed on a television show or he's on a radio broadcast talking about not only his new book, Dream Again, which is the story of Isaiah Austin, but also talking about To Kill a Mockingbird and Go Set a Watchman and all things Harper Lee. Matt lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his family. He's a writer. He's a speaker. Uh, he's just, just a great all-around guy. He's a fellow Trevecca Nazarene University graduate, and I am so thrilled to have him here on the Voices in My Head podcast again this week, where we're going to be discussing why the world needs Atticus Finch today more than ever. And who knows where our conversation is going to take us. Um, a new a novel came out, which I know the whole world has been talking about, Go Set a Watchman, which is the sequel, uh, or some might say almost a prequel sequel, because uh, many believe, as it's been reported, that it was written before, To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, Matt is in the middle of reading it. I have not read it yet, so I'm excited to hear some of his viewpoints. Um, it's getting a lot of controversy right now, and uh, a lot of people, even on my blog, if you go to rickleyjames.com, I, I posted a radio post from NPR of uh, Marine uh Kerrigan, I believe, was her name, uh, and she had some some not so great words about it. But I understand you, Matt, have uh, some complete opposite views from her that you are really enjoying the book and finding it to be quite good. So I'm looking forward to talking about that today. So welcome, Matt. After that long introduction to Voices in My Head, Rick, it's good to talk to you, man. Yeah, I think the segue that you just made. I haven't seen the NPR piece about Ghost of Watchmen, but uh, I've been. Uh, doing media all week to talk about it because I wrote a book uh, about the spiritual lessons that I learned from Kella Mockingbird, and we can talk about that in a couple of minutes. But I guess I just want to start out telling everyone to go read a Watchman. 
go pick it up and read it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little past the halfway point in the novel, and so far I have found it poignant. I've found it uh, emotional, uh, moving. Uh, there are some scenes in it of, of just language that, 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 that is so racist that, that it's hard to read. But it's this, this beautiful look at how difficult it is for people to change. Um, and the thing that I love about Watchmen so far is that, you know, Harper Lee grew up in a church culture, a churched culture. Uh, mm-hmm. She grew up in the Methodist tradition. And so she has this command of church language and church attitudes uh, that seeps through her writing in the form of criticism that is so powerful. And the thing that I love about Watchmen so far is there's a, you know, there's a lot of church scenes. And there's a great church scene where she flashes back to as children them acting out revivals. And so um, I love that part of her writing. I think, uh, you know, she points to the church and our complicity with, ra- you know, the racism uh, and the things that were going on in the South all over the country. And, and that's stuff we need to own up to and take a look at uh, because it's grounded in this whole idea that, you know, Gosh, sometimes we uh, sometimes we pretend church is more about our political ideas, and and it's more of a social club than you know what what it's actually supposed to be. Uh, so, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But I got I got to tell you, you got to read it, Rick. You know, and and the deal is, I think the hard thing for a lot of people is, and, and last Friday night, you know, my wife and I, of course, I grew up in a home where To Kill a Mockingbird was right there with the family Bible, as far as books of importance, you know, Hmm. because of the lessons on compassion and character and and courage. And so last Friday night, uh, my wife was flipping through Twitter and saw the New York Times talk about this new novel with Atticus's dark side and Atticus as a racist. And my heart just sank. And I thought, oh, no, you know, the Atticus of my childhood that that I've always looked up to, my hero. Um, But having said that, Losing Atticus as a hero, understanding, you know, this book is not told from a child's perspective. It's told from an adult, Jean Louise Finch's perspective, and she sees the flaws in her father. And there's, in fact, there's a line when she says, the man who taught me to be colorblind was a racist. And it's just this powerful moment. And so, you know, I went from being terrified of losing Atticus Finch to embracing, hey, I'm... I'm cool losing Atticus Finch as a hero. We get to see his humanity and how difficult it is for him to hold on to change, even though it's the right change and it's so overdue and so necessary. And even that he's got these ugly attitudes, you know, I think racism is, you know, it's this horrible word and it's this horrible idea. Um, but we get to see this, this character that we've all kind of held up as this, this, you know, model of, of compassion and courage his dark side and I, and I think it's just moving it's moving so wow. sorry i i got really excited and talked a lot but i highly recommend the new book highly oh, recommend it that's why i want you here i want you to talk that's fantastic um I, well i'm really glad to hear that because you're one of the few like really enthusiastic reviewers so far of that and i i think maybe that's what you're touching on is that's what's so hard um is because you know i I think for a lot of us atticus just as an archetype as a character from to kill a mockingbird is sort of this hero you know i mean in a lot of ways you kind of look at him like oh my gosh so it's sort of like having you know finding out 
you know, finding out Jesus was a jerk or something, you know, like behind the scenes, you're like, oh no, I thought he was so wonderful, but he just kicked that dog, you know, or whatever it was. So um, it's it's interesting to hear that perspective. And I, I think, you know what, there's, I heard somebody just this morning make a comparison and, and maybe we can talk to this a bit before we get too far into where we're going with our conversation. Um, I heard somebody make a comparison between Atticus and Bill Cosby. And I, I had not uh, thought about that before. I can't remember who said it this morning, but they said, you know, if you think about it, he said something that we're struggling with right now is all of our lives for most of us, Bill Cosby was not only just this very funny guy, and he was this uh, TV dad that we kind of looked up to, like, okay, that's what dads are supposed to be. And he was very outspoken about being moral, and, you know, it was like even things as extreme as, like, you know, you shouldn't say bad words, you know, things like that. He would always get on to Eddie Murphy and other comedians and stuff. And then there was so many things that he was calling um, people, African Americans especially, you know, to, to do better. You know, it was sort of like he was, um, you know, banging this drum that, you know, the world's not going to give you anything. You need to, to prove that we can be uh, something higher than the, the example that we've so often shown. And then now we're seeing in the news such disappointment because it seems like, oh, we thought he was this. But now we're finding out that he is an extremely flawed person, too. So I you know, maybe we can talk about that a minute because the idea that... I think we are bad in our society about assuming that all of us are just one thing, you know, and and like the the Atticus, uh, if he's a real human, it, it does make sense to an extreme. Like if you think about who we are as people, we'd love to say that we are always the hero. But the hardest thing about us is that we also have this dark side that needs to be redeemed, and oftentimes we haven't allowed it to be. So uh, anyway, what what are your thoughts on that with sort of the the Bill Cosby comparison and all that? Wow. You know, I've had to check myself a couple of times, uh, especially over the weekend when I was wrestling with it, and I had to tell myself, Matt, Atticus Finch is not a real person. I mean, that's my first thought. I mean, they have a statue built for this man in Alabama. Yeah. Um, He he was named the the number one, I think, movie hero in 20th century film, Gregory Peck's portrayal of Atticus Finch. Sure. So my first thought is, God, get it, you know, get a grip, get a grip on reality. But I think that point is so interesting. And I want to say in an aside, that I think that we sometimes have these sacred cows that we hold on to. And I love your point to, to you know, just allowing people to be flawed, you know? Mm-hmm. Gosh, I hope, I hope, you know, just that grace. But I, I think that Atticus is, you know, I think in the heart of Americans, Atticus is who we want to be. Mm-hmm. And so I do think he's a sacred cow for us. And here's what I would say. My first point to that is, you know, Harper Lee is... The new novel here, which is supposed to take, even though it was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, it's supposed to take place after To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. The, you know, the novel is, it comes from the imagination of the woman who wrote the words, if we're really going to understand each other, we need to learn how to walk around in each other's skin, to see the world from each other's perspective, from another's point of view. And really wrote about compassion and how important compassion is to change and seeing the world from other people's point of view. And so I think we need to remember that Atticus Finch is not the, the, the focal point here. 
we're, we're getting the same message from this woman's imagination that, that really we love. And, and I've often, you know, I've, I've thought in the last couple of days, wouldn't it be interesting if 50 years from now we look back and go set a watchman is as important to this generation of readers as To Kill a Mockingbird was to the last. Sure. And so, you know, we're really, we're picking up another hero in this. I think, I think, and I haven't finished the book, um, but, you know, the other thing, too, from a literary perspective, and, and you know you've written, I, I was working on a scene in a chapter one time, and my editor sent it back, and she said, hey, what if you told this story from a different perspective? And I did, and it completely changed the entire chapter. And I think from a writing perspective, we need to ask the question, did Harper Lee have the opportunity to pass this back and forth with an editor? You know, that's a question yeah. we need to ask. I think we need to look at Watchmen as, hey, this was her first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. Not that it's not beautiful. Um, and I've, I've talked with some writers lately. It, we've laughed because, I mean, of course, no one, no one can write like Harper Lee. She's amazing. But I think there's probably writers across the world that are burning old drafts of manuscripts this very <laughs> moment because they're terrified, you know, they're going to walk out the door and get hit by a car and somebody's going to find it in a lockbox. So there's some funny aspects to it. But, you know, to your point, I think, and I think you really nailed the theme of the new book of Ghost Set a Watchman, and that is that, you know, um, I think we need to, I think we need to cut people some grace. I think we need to allow our heroes to, to, to have areas in their life that they struggle with. I think the thing that makes us all, uh, I think the I think the thing that makes us all shudder and shy away from this is that it's a really ugly dark side because it's racism, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think we uh, we can be tolerant of some things, you know, um, but but it's hard for and rightfully so. It's difficult for us to reconcile a, a hero that's got a racist side. That's really really difficult. Harper Lee's asking us to do something that you know, I think uh, in a really good way is difficult for us to do. Um, and yet, gosh, this, it's even hard for me to say this, but, and yet, you know, I think as people of faith, Christ would offer the same grace to the racist Atticus that he would to the one that we thought was not. And I think that we need to continue to be open um, to people, even who have those kind of terrible, terrible views and I think the Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird, if he could speak to the Atticus Finch of Ghost Set a Watchman, he would say, uh, or speak about the Atticus of Ghost Set a Watchman, he would say, no matter what this person says or does, you, you need to remember that he's still our neighbor, because that's what he said to his daughter, To Kill a Mockingbird. And he would understand that, hey, gosh, this older Atticus has horrible views, but I, it's my responsibility to keep my relational connection with him because that might be his only possibility of change. And if I, if I disconnect from him as a, as a human being, then I lose any kind of influence I could have in his life, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, I think that, yeah, but, uh, it's, it's, it's been difficult. It's been difficult to read this new Atticus. Definitely. Oh, I, I bet so. Um, and, and it is funny because even though, like you said, it's a fictional character, I mean, they, they do become much more than that in our minds. I mean, it's why, 
it's why you know internet fanboys get so you know like fighting mad about batman and superman it's not because they really think they're real people but there's something about the character themselves that that we want to be embodied and we want to be real you know and mm-hmm. um and that's one of the things that's so hard as we come to it i think and i i think you're making some really good points but um so so Atticus I mean initially before you had even read any of this and when you contacted me um you had talked about the idea of let's discussing why the world needs Atticus Finch now more than ever um now maybe the question might be a little different do you think the world needs Atticus Finch now more than ever now that we see you know a little bit more of him as an entire in the entire picture both as like the eyes of a child in the eyes of an adult um any any thoughts on that i mean does it does it change your like i i guess i'm i'm asking like are you going to approach it as like um the old atticus and the new atticus or are you going to be able to like separate them out or are you trying to see him as the as the whole person together you know i will have to i'll have to finish watchmen to answer that okay because i i I don't know I have a I have a suspicion that Atticus's character might be redeemed at the end of Watchmen, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I can't really speak to that. Here's the here's the honest to god truth, and that is, you know, Watchmen was the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, and so if we really, I, I the Atticus of To Kill a Mockingbird is still the Atticus of To Kill a Mockingbird to me, and and here's why. Um, there are so many things about I admire about him and, 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 you know, his courage, his dedication to faith, and his willingness to, you know, uh, the, the character in To Kill a Mockingbird, the Atticus Finch there, um, is not concerned with winning. In fact, as a lawyer, it says at the beginning he's never won a court case. Mm-hmm. And he takes, on this, he takes on this court case really knowing that it's going to cost his family, knowing that it's going to cost relationships, uh, knowing that it's going to cost really like um, him to be liked, you know, and, and I think in today's culture, that's such a profound message. It's something we need to hear that, hey, you know, doing the right thing uh, when it's really hard, that's courage, when you have nothing to gain from it. Um, sure. And I love that part of his character. There's so many more lessons. And so I, I, I definitely am, am able to separate the two characters. Um, simply because, in my mind, To Kill a Mockingbird was Harper Lee's final draft. I, I believe that she wanted us to see Atticus as somebody we could aspire to rather than somebody we could, you know, identify with, you know. Cause, yeah. well, and that's the other thing, you know, and, and again, you know, uh, racism is so, so ugly, but I think as Christians, we need to read this new Atticus and say, okay, that's really ugly, but instead of pointing the finger, really think about, hey, in what ways do I, when I go to church, look outside of our community and view people as the other? Because I think that's when that's when the ugliness begins in our heart, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, I think, fortunately, in 2015, I, I, I don't believe that most of the country is racist. I believe so much of that has been healed. I know there's some left. But I do think that we all need to kind of really look at this new character and the ugliness of his racism and say, okay, what's in my heart like that? I think yeah. we need to keep asking that question. That's such an important question to ask. Hmm. Um, 
So very, yeah, very true. That that's that's a good way to put that. And and I wonder too, as I've been thinking about this, and unfortunately, I haven't even been able to get a copy of of the book yet. I was kind of holding out hope that I could get one from the library, but you know, the rest of the world wanted to read it too. So, <laughs> um, so I haven't been able to do that yet. So I really can't talk intelligently to the character of Atticus. But I I did have this thought, like if. Um, and, and taking into account, of course, it was, you know, probably her first draft, although there seems to be some, it's, it's weird, maybe we can talk about that later, but I know the NPR report I heard, they're, they're kind of dubious that it was a first draft, that, that maybe the publishers are, are trying to present some things that aren't real. I don't know where they get that information from, but, uh, that's for, for maybe another uh, topic, but what I was thinking about through this with, like, the old Atticus and the new Atticus, um, there, there is a reality to, it is so hard to stand against the crowd, you know. So I'm thinking of like Atticus, who he just always seems to be standing by himself, you know, in the whole To Kill a Mockingbird book. And and right or wrong, you know, he's he seems to be like he's he's you know planted his feet and uh, and said I'm not going to move and I'm not going to go against that way. Um, but as time goes on and as as things keep pushing you, at some point. As humans, it's just easier for us to go, okay, I'm tired of fighting this, and it's just, I'm tired of the arguing, I'm tired of feeling like I'm constantly beaten down from my views, I'm just going to go along with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. That's a, and that's a very human side, and I, I almost wonder if we, if we can't take that as sort of a cautionary tale, too, in the midst of this story. Like, is that the journey that Atticus has made? And, and from what I understand, there's not a lot... Uh, in the book that focuses on sort of his journey as to how he got there. So we're just kind of pondering that and wondering. But um, her characters, Harper Lee's characters, seem so genuinely human and real, like people we would know. Uh, mm-hmm. do, you think, do you think it makes sense in some way that that could very well have been where where that person went? You know what? I, Rick, I honestly, and, and I lost my dad at 27, which 27 is not super young. But because of that, because, because you know, at 27, you're, you're, you're really hitting your stride as an adult, and you're starting to really see your parents as an adult. And I think as you near 30, you start to realize, oh, wow, you know, my, my, my father has this attitude. I don't like that. I mean, yeah. you really don't start to see your parents in a critical light, I think, until you hit 30. You know, and you start a little bit, but, and, and, and really have that relationship. And so, for me, as I've read this, I've, I've thought, you know, I have this idyllic view of my own father because he passed when I was younger. Um, and I think that is more the case. You know, mm-hmm. if we were going to talk about this like it was a timeline, you know, because remember, to kill Mockingbird's told to the eyes of a child and the voice of Scout Finch. And when we're young, our parents, they are our superheroes, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, I, I don't want to ruin the book. I, I think I might have mentioned there's a scene where, where, where Gene Lee's runs from the courtroom and, and throws up yeah. and says, the man, the man that taught me to be colorblind was a racist. And, and here's the thing, you know, yes, that's ugly. He's a racist, but he taught her to be colorblind. Um, and so I think there's still some things we can admire about Atticus in this new book, and I'll yeah. have to finish it to speak on it. But uh, 
Uh, yeah, I think I think that I think it's also you know just the different uh, it's the different point of view that the two stories are told from that's making a little bit of difference there. Yeah, well, very good, very interesting. Um, well, where do you want to take us in this conversation? Because you you are I would say you're the closest thing I know to an expert on Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird. I by the way I want to say to everyone who's listening, um, you really if if you are at all um, a fan of To Kill a Mockingbird, you really should read uh, Matt Litton's book, The, the Mockingbird Parables. It is just a fantastic read. Um, it's it really is kind of what the title says. It's it's parables that that we can take from the Mockingbird story. Um, I just reread it again this week in preparation for the podcast, and uh, there are a couple places that I feel like you as a great. I mean, you you really do have a way with words, Matt. And I, I know you've probably you're told that as as someone who's written several books, but um, I I enjoy your sort of commentary on it as much as I do Harper Lee's writing, and so I just want to kind of give that plug to everyone. Check out the Mockingbird Parables, especially if you're hoping like um, to to use this. If you're a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, uh, especially it, there's so much good material that Matt hits on where you can use something. Why not use one of the the things that culture is gravitating around right now, especially in one of the greatest pieces of literature to be written in the last hundred years um, as a way to talk about Christ. And I, so I, anyway, let me just put that plug in there. But where, where do you want to take us as the, as the, the mockingbird expert here today, Matt? Well, you know, I think, I, I, I think going back to the mockingbird parables, I wanted to tell that story because it's kind of interesting. Um, I, uh, I had a young lady, uh, that I spoke with, oh gosh, a month or two ago, I, I met her at a party, uh, my wife and I did, and, and she said, well, you know, I, I didn't really care for your academic reading and, and, and the Mockingbird Parables, and I thought, well, it, you know, I wasn't setting out to do anything academic with, with yeah. that book, and, and, and I, I kind of wanted to tell the story of that whole process because it's so neat. You know, uh, when I started to write that, that book came out uh, just a, a week or so after the 50th anniversary of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, I really had no idea uh, that I was coming up on the 50th anniversary when I began to write it, um, because I think I said earlier in the podcast, you know, in my house, uh, and my parents were educators, and I grew up in, in, in the evangelical tradition, like a lot of your listeners maybe, um, but To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus Finch were always part of, it was always on the shelf, and it was a book that kind of found me as a young man because my mom was an English teacher and would read it to us. And I often grew up thinking, you know, what would Atticus do in this situation? Um, and we had family conversations about that. Um, and so, you know, I grew up and, and I spent some time in the classroom, and as I was teaching To Kill a Mockingbird, I started to realize, wait a minute, Harper Lee grew up in a very churched culture uh, like I have. Um, and... There's a line in her book. She says there are just some kind of men who are so concerned with the next world that they've never learned to live in this one. Wow. And you can look down the street and see the results. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I was teaching that to my class, and I had just read, I, w I had just been reading C.S. Lewis. You know, he's got the line, it might be possible to think of heaven too much. It's impossible for us to think too deeply or too often about our neighbors. And I started to realize that Harper Lee has a lot of really good things to say to church people hmm. in that book, um, to church culture. 
um, and how when we are focused on ourselves and when we aren't focused on our neighborhood, uh, when we aren't grounded in the compassion that's central to our faith, um, there's some really ugly things that can grow out of that. Uh, and so that's where the parables started, and it's certainly not an academic book. It's uh, a collection of stories um, that kind of kind of use the characters and the scenes of To Kill a Mockingbird and show, hey, these are the spiritual lessons I learned. And to be real blunt with you, Rick, mm-hmm. you know, I think that Harper Lee's characters and the fact that my parents were educators and that her novel was part of our conversation it was one of the things that helped protect me from some of the ugly parts of evangelicalism, Hmm. quite honestly. Wow. Um, So, you know, and and, and of course, the the overarching theme that I love to to kill a mockingbird is when, you know, uh, Atticus says to Scout, you never really understand a person until you climb into his skin and walk around in it, until you see the world from their point of view. And, you know, if if we're really reading the New Testament the right way, I mean, Jesus kind of put on human skin and walked around in it for a while. He was a human being. He understands what life looks like through our eyes, um, which makes that act on the cross an act of compassion, the ultimate act of compassion in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it seems sometimes in church we get so wrapped up uh, with our politics, uh, with our dogmas and our doctrines, with the correctness of our orthodoxy. Um, and gosh, here in the South, with just the social club aspect of it, that we forget that our faith uh, is, is grounded in compassion and that yeah. our central responsibility is to our neighbor. And the Atticus Finch that I love from To Kill a Mockingbird, too, is the Atticus Finch that tells his daughter, hey, Scout, I couldn't go to church and worship God if I didn't defend this man. Yeah. Um, and, and so there was just so many messages to me directed at me as a church person, um, and so, and, and also, I, I, you know, I wrote these parables, there's, there's one of the parables is, you know, how do we communicate with each other, and, and it uses Atticus as a model for that, um, because, you know, certainly Atticus was a guy who, uh, you know, listened to other people, uh, who, who gave up the people their voice, who, you know, he wasn't, he was never shouting people down, and I think, you know, my, the chap, my favorite parable in that book might be my chapter on communication because I think that there is a Christ-like way to communicate. Um, and, it, and, and even if it's not Christ-like, maybe it's Atticus-like, and that's a good thing in yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird, especially in today's culture where we elevate the people who have the last and the loudest word, um, who win the argument. And the truth is, you know, there's a compassionate form of communication, and it's really an exchange of ideas. Um, and it's something we really need to hear right now in the church. And so I love that particular chapter. But, you know, as a father of four, Atticus Finch and, and the other, the, the, the other, uh, main character, adult character in the novel, Miss Maudie, I think they have a lot to teach us about parenting. You know, the way Atticus, the way Atticus trusted the community to help with his children, um, the way he was intent on offering his presence to his children, which, Gosh, we're bad at that sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. as your kid comes around and your face is in your iPhone. Um, I think every parent out there can relate to that. Um, and so, to me, there were so many different lessons from parenting to communication to, to you know, really, I mean, the importance of how we care for, for the, the environment around us that we've been given, our responsibility to the neighborhood. And there's a really fun chapter in there where I compare Boo Radley, 
which is everyone's favorite mysterious character from To Kill a Mockingbird. I make some 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 comparisons. I use him as a metaphor for God in a really fun way in yeah. the book. And so, um, so the, the neat thing about that project was that it really allowed me to spend a lot of time with a book, a novel that I love, and also um, kind of explain, hey, these are the ways that this novel impacted my faith. Um, and 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 do it in a do it in a fun and conversational way. And so I really sure. set it up to yeah I set it up as a book that can be used by small groups, you know, along with the movie. And and you only really have to have a cursory uh, a cursory from you know a familiarity with uh, with uh, Lee's novel. As long as you know a little bit about the characters, I think I think sure. the book can be great in that way. So. Sure, and yeah. I, and it's and it is good, folks. If you if you trust my opinion at all, I I really highly recommend it. Um, I I wanted to, if you don't mind, there's a there's a character who really doesn't play a huge part in the book, but in your book you you point him out, and it and it makes it even. Um, it really drives home the point of what you're talking about um, with the social aspect of the church, and maybe it'll help us maybe just to change our conversation a little bit away from Atticus and end into some of the other amazing things that Harper Lee wrote about the church, and even what the church should be, and maybe the church being what we didn't expect it to be, and some of the creative ways that the church should be. So if you don't mind, I had um, I'm, I'm liking doing this. I had David Morell on a couple days ago, the you know Rambo's daddy. And uh, and I got to read a few passages of his books to him and have him make some comments about it, <laughs> and uh, and I really enjoyed doing that. So if you don't mind, there's I want to talk about Reverend Sykes for a minute, and I oh. I want to read a, a passage from your book if that's okay, and then maybe we can discuss it. Is that all right with you? Yeah, that's okay. great. All right. Um, just speaking of uh, of being what the church should be, and these are a few paragraphs uh, from Matt Litton's book, The Mockingbird Parables. And um, Reverend Sykes is the pastor of First Purchase Church, and at the close of his sermon, um, he does something beautiful for uh, the family of... of um, help me, Matt. The name just slipped my mind. Uh, the person on trial... Um, the Robinson family, his his his, right. uh, okay. his wife and his child, yeah. Right, the Robinson family. It's to totally slip my mind. That's the dangers of doing this live. Is my my brain sometimes collapses on me. Um, but he's he's doing uh, at the end of his service. Uh, it says the the entire congregation comes forward one at a time to place coins in a coffee can at the front of the sanctuary. Uh, Scout and Jim uh, bring their offering as well. And uh, and you say in your book that I'm starting reading here from page 51 on my Kindle. Uh, it says, No matter how many times I read the novel, I'm always moved by the scene in which the pastor empties the offering can in front of the congregation, begins to count the money, and tells them it is not enough. He reminds them that one of their own, Helen Robinson, needs help while her husband is in jail. He then closes the church doors and announces that no one will leave until they've collected $10. I can honestly say I have never witnessed this in a church service, have never heard of it happening, and can't even imagine it taking place in real life. But there is something so moving about the pastoral determination of the reverend. In the silence that follows, he begins to call out by name the churchgoers who have not contributed enough. Scout tells us that after several long and uncomfortable moments, the $10 are finally collected and the church doors are unlocked. How could you read this scene and not think that we need more pastors like Reverend Sykes of First Purchase Church? 
You can almost feel the discomfort of the closed door, the sweating, the heat of the room, the smell of the perfume, the rhythm of people fanning themselves to stay cool, and Reverend Sykes's eyes raking over each parishioner as he scans the sanctuary, determined to make sure that Helen Robinson can feed her family that week. Isn't this the way the church should work? Not a soul openly questions the Reverend's authority in this scene. They are set on for... Um, they are set on caring for one another. This was the way the early church operated in caring for its own community. And so it turned out that not a person among them was needy. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the price of the sale to the apostles and made it an, off an offering of it. The apostles then distributed it according to each person's need, Acts 4, 34, and 35 from the message. So, uh, yeah, that, that passage follows when the offering has been taken for the Robinson family and there wasn't enough. <laughs> so I love that. Talk to us about that scene because, I mean, you just did through your writing what I just read. But, man, it's a great scene. Hey, my first thought is, do you know a pastor with that kind of courage? And in fairness to the pastors out there, what are we concerned with in church today? Hmm. I mean, if 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 I if Pastor Rick Lee James was standing at the front of the first purchase church and said, Lock the doors, we ain't leaving until we have ten dollars to help this family out, like any family in need, first of all, you're gonna lose uh five or six of your members the very next <laughs> Sunday. That's right. That's gonna <laughs> which is going to make paying the mortgage really problematic. And then if you're from our tradition, you know, that's several thousand dollars that you've got to send off to some fund in Kansas City. You know, I mean, that's going to cut into that deal. And then if you go, I mean, what about the new building program over here? And so in fairness to us, gosh, aren't we focused on so many of the wrong things? I mean, when, when you look at this family whose, you know, husband is in jail and they're, I mean, this is a matter of, this is a matter of can they buy groceries for the week, you know, um, which is what church is supposed to be. We're supposed to come together and our first job is supposed to be, hey, you know, are we taking care of our single mothers? Hey, do our elderly have a ride to the doctor? Hey, is, is everybody, everybody able to, you know, meet their mortgage? I mean, those are the things that we need to focus on, and, and yet we're basically running these little businesses. We're basically concerned about all we, you know, because these these poor pastors, I mean, your success is often measured by, well, how how is your church growing? It's yeah. not measured by, man, are your people loved? You know, yeah. are you teach actually, I'm sorry, are you teaching your people to love each other? And, uh, Gosh, the courage of that guy, you know? And, and you got to remember, that scene takes place in the poorest community in Macon. So coming up with $10, I mean, that would be, that might as well be, you know, coming up with a couple hundred, um, you know, at, at, at the service across town. And so that's what's beautiful about it. Uh, yeah. And it's funny, too, because in that scene, the pastor standing at the front, he's actually staring people down. Yeah. You know, and he calls the guy out. He goes, I, I didn't see you up here. Can you imagine that happening in a, in, oh. in a, in a you know, Nazarene or Methodist church? I mean, I would pay money to see that. That's it's it's yeah. awesome. So, you know, that I was going to say the, the only thing I can think that even rates close to that story that I've actually heard that's a true story is um, that Steve Hoskins, of course, you know, from Trevecca, the church history professor there. Um, he pastored a little church in Kentucky, and I, I honestly can't remember details like where it was or people's names or things like that. 
But he tells this story that is very well known, I guess, in the community. And I, I think it's a beautiful example of pastoral authority because you were asking, do you know anybody like Reverend Sykes that could stand up and do that? And uh, I don't know if you ever heard him tell this story, but it's you're going to hear it now, just in case you haven't. Um, he says that in this town in Kentucky, he said when when desegregation was happening, uh, right around the same time, you know, when, when the, the Mockingbird stuff is taking place. Of course, it's in the South. He said the town was so upset about it that people were like pulling over their cars and getting in fist fights on the street. And just this town was just being torn apart by this issue. And it, and it came to a head one evening and the whole town gathered together in the high school gymnasium and they had a microphone and people got up and for like two, three hours just railed against uh, black people and it was it was like the whole talent they're going to ruin everything we can't stand for this we're you know they're 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 nothing but you know they're not even human and, and just the worst things you can say about other people just for no other reason than their skin color and they said that there's this pastor that was there in the community and he'd been there his entire life he was uh you know probably starting to get in his elderly years at this point and he listened to this for about two or three hours and then he walked over to this mob and he he turned the mic around instead of addressing the town council and he he looked at the town and he and he said to them i am ashamed of every last one of you he said i have lived here my entire life i have been at the births of many of you i have buried people's family uh, members that are here, I have prayed with you, I have baptized most of you, and I have to tell you, as someone who loves you and is your pastor, I am ashamed of you. And he turns and he walks out, the meeting was over, and he said that town had very few problems with desegregation from that point on because of this man's authority in that community. And I mm. thought, I thought, wow. And and part of his authority came from the fact he had lived among them, you know, and he was one of them. And I I just thought of that story like the idea of a different kind of pastoral authority, but something that still you don't hear very much of these days. And and honestly, you know, we pastors we've ruined it in some ways. You know, all you ever hear is another salacious headline of some twist, you know, crooked pastor that's stolen money or had an affair or things like that and it's unfortunate i don't know that a lot of pastors have that kind of authority uh, yeah and, and and in fairness to pastors i think i think that that uh i think the way we do church here uh makes things difficult at times you know when you were talking i thought about one of my favorite parts of of one of the, my favorite things that i worked through in uh the mockingbird parables is that you know harper lee talks a lot about equality um, and the and the gospel and the early church had this radical sense of equality. You know, the the when the Romans began to persecute the Christians, if you read the letters of the different Roman leaders, they are so confused by the fact that these early Christians have women in leadership positions. Um, they don't see uh, they don't see race. Uh, they don't see socioeconomic status. Just this radical sense of equality. And that was the early gospel. That was the early church. And um, I think Harper Lee does such a great job, and I really focus on this in a chapter on women and leadership. I have a mm -hmm. chapter about women and leadership in, right. in the Mockingbird Parables and, and racial equality. And, and, and Harper Lee hammers that, hammers the church in specific, 
uh, in her novel, and, and uh, that's one of my favorite, you know, and, and that, that's one of my favorite causes, but one of my favorite things to work through in the Mockingbird Parables was my chapter on, you know, equality in the church, and, and, you know, the fact that we need women in leadership, it's very difficult in our tradition, especially right now, for a woman to be a lead pastor, and it's just, we still, it, which is crazy, in, in 2015, we have so far to go with that. Yeah. So. That's very true. Very true, and it's unfortunate, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, I, I have to remind myself sometimes that there's a lot of good in the church as well as, you know, when, when we hear the bad. You know, sometimes if a person insults us, you know, if you have one person out of a hundred that says something negative to you, you're not going to remember the 99 good things and sometimes sometimes we can be that way about the church or about pastors too and i i really i wouldn't have stuck with like the church of the nazarene and i wouldn't have uh stuck with a lot of my pastoral friends if i didn't see so much light in it too and yet there are those those times where we need to be able to call out and just say honestly where we are falling short and i i think if anything you know if we're gonna talk about what harper lee gives us and helping us look at church culture and race and so many other things i think it's a it's a a beautiful sort of commentary um it's a stark commentary i guess i should say because some of it's a little bit hard to take Uh, and depending on the part of the country you're in i mean it's some of these battles are just as real now as they ever were i think and so i really absolutely my heart goes out and listen you know, I, I think, you know, our, our, when we have conversations about the church, it is a family conversation. And I think yeah. it's very important for us to be open and critical of what goes on in church. But at the same time, people should understand that, hey, I'm part of the church. You're part of the church. This is something that we love. This is part, a huge part of our life. Sure. Um, and so, but I don't think that, you know, as long as that doesn't temper us saying, hey, let's take a look at this. Let's be really honest about this. So, but I, I love your point that, that there there are so many beautiful things happening. That just, I mean, pages and pages. You could fill newspapers across America with the cool things um, that are happening in church in America right now. So. Yeah, yeah. It would be nice if some of them would put them on newspaper pages <laughs> to see. Yeah. Because uh, it's you know the church has gotten a bad rap right now. Um, some of it deservedly so, some of it not. But I I do I do feel like again like you said I love the idea that it's a family conversation and that uh, as families we we can critique what's going on within it. Doesn't mean we hate it and it doesn't mean we want it to go anywhere necessarily. It's just something that has to be done at times. So. Well, well, Rick, I, I think we, we, we are stealing that from uh, some areas of, of the, the greater culture, and I really believe that it's, it is the church's job to lead culture, and so I, I think we have to be really careful that we are leading in the way we, we have our inner dialogue. I think we should be very open to the criticism and the conversation, because, and remember that people are watching. Yeah. You know, people are always watching how we handle this. And I think if the, if the, in a greater culture, uh, I think there's an attitude that, hey, if you, if you criticize me, I'm going to attack. And I think we can model something different in the church. We can, we can say, hey, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, um, I might have a different point of view, but, but I, I, I can respect your opinion because I love you. I think we need more of that today. I mean, now more than ever. Uh, yeah. and so, anyway right yeah and i and i think that it it's it's 
in some ways gotten better, in some ways gotten worse with things like social media, you know, because in in some ways the world is smaller than ever before. Um, mm. and, and yet we'll say things to each other that we would never say in person for one thing. And, and we've, we've become like selective readers or selective listeners too. And I, I feel mm. like so much, especially in the church culture has, we've stopped listening and, um, and, I, I saw a quote this morning. I think I put it on on Twitter because I liked it so much. It said, "A wise man once said nothing," and uh, <laughs> and I, I was like, "That's the best quote of all time." A wise man once said nothing, <laughs> and uh, awesome. it would be it would be so good if we could could learn to listen. Sometimes, I mean, I I posted something um, last night just to give an example. And this is not to point anybody out, but. I I really thought about my words before I put them out there on my blog post. And, you know, right now Planned Parenthood is really under a lot of scrutiny for things if you've been watching the news lately. And, um, and it, you know, basically they're, they're being accused of harvesting body parts and things like that. And, and I, I think it's real easy for Christians to just, you know, make blanket statements about everything. And, um, and I, I just posted a thing last night on my, uh, my website at rickleyjames.com. It's, it's quoting William Willimon. And, and it gives an alternative to abortion that the church, you know, like where this church actually decides, you know what, the only way we can combat abortion is to actually begin taking these kids in, you know, and, and, uh, mm-hmm. to start, to start loving the mothers and loving the women and, and the children and raising, sometimes raising 14 year old girls along with the babies they've given birth to because nobody else is there to do it. And, um, yeah. I, like I, I wrote on the post, I said, you know, I was trying to think, I said, you know, I think what my words were, were, in, in my opinion, the church doesn't have a voice to condemn things like abortion if we aren't willing to do the difficult work of what the things you know, right. like, like this church does. And all that somebody read was, and, and you know, and, and like made kind of a disparaging statement about me on Facebook, was like, we can condemn it all the time. It's never a right thing. Killing's always wrong. And I'm going, that's not what I was saying. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't right. listen. You didn't right. hear. And I and I and I just give that as an example, not to pick on this person, but just as an example of sort of like we we don't listen, like we're not really see right. what's being said. We we see what we want to see, and we're just quick to jump on and and start yelling. And so I I think it's absolutely good for us to be listeners. So well, uh, to, to circle back around too, Rick, I, I think that that's why I, I wrote a blog the other day. Go read a Watchman, and and I just you know as a former educator, uh, I thought you know. There and, and and just to be real frank, the last book uh, that I read that got this much negative attention, I loved it. And yeah. and and as an educator, I thought you know so many people because here's the dirty little secret um, that no one will tell you. A lot of journalists and a lot of book, even a lot of book reviewers, and and just to be real frank, uh, you know a lot of people at publishing houses don't read the books, and so you know. Um, now, I'm not saying that the, the New York Times, the guy didn't read the book. I'm just saying that you can't take one person's perspective on something and just believe it. Uh, I really want people to go read Watchmen for themselves. I, 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 for themselves. I think, especially if you're a church person, gosh, yeah. go read it. It's, it, it has so, I, I think it has a lot to say to us uh, about our complicity with racism, our history of it anyway. But really, like, it's difficult for us to change, and if we hold on as church communities and make church communities a place like, hey, we're not changing in here, uh, I think then 
that can be a real dangerous way to, to live out our faith. And, uh, and I think she does a really good job in what I've read so far and Watchmen of pointing that out. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it when I'm able to get a copy of the book. Uh, hey, before we go, and we've been talking for, gosh, we're getting almost to an hour here after uh, a few more minutes. Um, I want to make sure that, that we steer the conversation towards a new project that you have. And I, I want to remind people to check out your books, uh, The Mockingbird Parables, and also one that we've talked about on this show in the past, uh, Holy Nomad. Uh, but you have a new book that, that you've written with Isaiah Austin that tells his story um, called Dream Again. And I've seen mm-hmm. you do some interviews about that. I haven't got a chance to read it yet myself. Um, but I've, I've loved what you had to say, and I got to watch. The, the beauty of the Internet is that though you're on a news show, a sports show in Nashville, I'm able to watch it here in Ohio through the Internet. And that, it was great. I loved the interview that you did, and I've been watching you. It just seems like all of a sudden you're, you're all over the place online. And uh, on TV shows and radio stations, I think you were just on Moody Broadcasting. Uh, so tell us a little bit before we have to end our conversation today about that project and, and if there's anything else that you want to talk about that you have coming up down the pike. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I uh, uh, as I moved back to Nashville, I began doing ghost writing, which means that I work with personalities to help them tell their story. And uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine uh, last year, and he said, hey, this agent in Los Angeles really needs a writer that has some basketball background. And one of my, one of my loves away from writing and music is, is basketball. And so I began to work with this young man, Isaiah Austin. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if you're a sports fan, you'll remember that last year in 2014, the NBA, during their draft, their annual draft, they did this really neat thing for this kid. They, they made him the first honorary draft pick in the history of the NBA. They called his name and brought him up on stage. Well, this young man, his name was Isaiah Austin. Hmm. And as it turns out, he had been five days. He was going to be a first-round draft pick in the NBA. Five days before that, he was diagnosed with a life-threatening condition uh, uh, called Marfan syndrome, which impacts the connective tissue throughout your body. And it impacted his heart in a way that if for him to play would be life-threatening. And so he had to leave the game that he loved. But the really remarkable thing about Isaiah was that this young man, he was one of the best basketball players in America for most of his life, for most of his adolescent life. He was blind in one eye. Mm. Uh, he, had, he had had a, a number of surgeries to repair a torn retina in his right eye, had to learn to play basketball blind, which, let me tell you, there's a lot of folks out there that can't play basketball with two good eyes. And this hmm. kid was a remarkable. He, he had to learn how to shake hands with people, how to pour a glass of water, all these things as, as, as a teenager, and wow. yet continued to work through that. And so, you know, it's really a story of, first of all, a faith in God. Um, and, and secondly, you know, uh, Isaiah really approached adversity in a, in a neat way. He understood, hey, I can't always control the things that life throws at me, but I can control my attitude about it, and I can control my actions about it. His mom sure. told him when he was a teenager, she said, you know, you have two excuse, you have two two options with this. You can make your blindness your excuse, or you can make it your story. And Isaiah is a young man who owned that, and because of his faith in God, uh, he uh, he's he's been out there speaking and inspiring people and raising tons of money for Marfon's research. And I had the chance last fall to walk alongside this young man 
as he was grieving the loss of a lifelong dream. And so it's really, if you're a sports fan, but it's a remarkable story, and I tell people all the time, even if you don't like sports, if you are facing something in life that you think, wow, I'm not going to get past this, pick this book up. Um, because it has a message for you about how to handle that kind of adversity in life. And so it was really a joy to be able to work on that project. Um, so. Well, that's great. Well, and I, I really do think a lot of people are going to enjoy it. I, that's the part that amazed me when I heard you tell the story before, like his his eyesight and, you know, having one eye working and then having to relearn how to, like, even pour water. And I'm thinking, man, with, with two good eyes, I can hardly shoot a basketball. So I can't imagine how he had to learn to adapt and then kind of kept that a secret. So uh, what a, a great story. So so Dream Again is the name of the book, and you ghost wrote it with Isaiah Austin. So I want people to make mm-hmm. sure and check that out. Now, if they go to mattlitton.com, is, is all of this information going to be there for them available? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, let's uh, let's kind of close our conversation out then. If we hit everything that you wanted to discuss, um, mattlitton.com is the place you guys need to go. I know you have enjoyed hearing from Matt again. It's always a pleasure. And, Matt, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Great to talk to you, Rick. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless. Well, my guest today on the Voices in My Head podcast is an old friend, and he's in, on. I messed that up. Let me say that again. <laughs> it's one of those. You're going to think I'm high or something the way I, this is going. Let me try this one more time. <laughs> well, my guest today on the Voices in My Pot. Doggone it. <laughs> I can't even get my words out. Okay, one more time. You're burning Skype time, bro. I, I know I am. I'm so. <laughs> it's crazy. All right. Three. Two, one.